Hello and welcome to another episode of Cloud Security Podcast. This is another show which is co-sponsored by Virtual Coffee with Ashish, which is a on-demand weekly show which you can stream on LinkedIn and YouTube every week. Today's topic was chaos engineering, and we had Aaron Reinhardt as a guest. Aaron Reinhardt started off in his security space as a chief security architect. He's worked for NASA. He's done some military service as well, and he is as close as you can get to. the chaos engineering field like is the source of it there are a few people around him as well but he's the first person i could get hold of and i really wanted to bring this topic to this podcast because it's not spoken about enough aaron and i connected 2 years ago when we were talking about chaos engineering and what the possibilities of it are on a slack channel some of the topics we spoke about on the show were about what is chaos engineering what is the difference between fuzzing and chaos engineering because a lot of people I guess feel that experiments in chaos engineering are similar. We also spoke about the business use case on how to convince your executives on doing chaos engineering in your organization. By the way, it doesn't need to be in production. Did I even mention that? It can be in dev, test or staging. Among other things, we also spoke about how you can start today in chaos engineering and where can you get information. For people who tuned in live and had the opportunity to hear about the free book, this is something that we've been doing Anyone who was asking a question, they were being given a free book, so you'll hear about that as well. It's a giveaway, and Aaron was really kind enough to kind of give out, like, I think it was six or seven copies of the book. So I would again, I encourage people to come onto the Virtual Coffee with Ashish show. The links are on the show notes. You can go to our YouTube page, subscribe there, or you can just, if you prefer the audio, this is the medium, and you would still hear the content. So just ignore the pieces where. we shout out for the free books but primarily a lot of interesting questions were asked and that's why they were given out the books were given out i would recommend joining the show because you get to ask people questions directly meet other people in the community as well and hear about what they have to say all right i'll stop talking and let's get into the episode with Aaron Reinhardt as always appreciate the support talk soon welcome Aaron Thanks for having me, Ashish. Well, I know chaos engineering is a very interesting topic. I've given a couple of talks about it myself as well, but I've always found it really hard to find the source of someone who's come that close to implementing it. Like a majority of the polls that I ran on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, majority of the polls where one of the options was yes, I have implemented, and yes, I know about it. Most of the responses were either no, I don't know about it, or Yes, I know of it, but never implemented. And it's really interesting from my perspective on chaos engineering. I think you and I have been talking about it for almost two, three years now. But it's, it was surprising for me that a lot, a lot of people knew about it. So I would love to j- deep dive into it. But before I do, obviously, for people who are listening to you for the first time, who is Aaron Reinhardt? Who's Aaron? Um, oh, Aaron. Yeah, well, I'm gonna go. <laughs> I want to use that for the next one. Yeah. No, um, who am I? So I am the CTO and co-founder of a company called Verica. We are somewhat stealthy startup, you know, a series A startup. We are the creators of chaos engineering. Casey Rosenthal is my co-founder. He's the CEO and uh, he created uh, chaos engineering and ran the teams at Netflix. Yep. Um, and basically we're bringing a more sophisticated set of products to make this easy for people to implement uh, and to get the value from chaos engineering as a practice. 
Um, if you see anything on web, Berica's website, you'll see stuff about continuous verification, as well as a good section in the coming O'Reilly book, or it just came out. Oh. oh. Uh, I believe Chris. Yeah, you should probably hold up for a few more seconds. That's right. <laughs> Thanks. Yep. Yeah. I got I got a great shot of it. Yep. That's it. Actually, if people go to verica.io slash book, there's a chance to win a copy of the book um, if you're interested in getting a free one. Oh, um, yeah. There you go. Perfect. You guys heard it. You guys heard it over here first. So just go there on the website. I'll I'll leave, leave a link on the uh, show notes as well for this for people to sign up. Curious to know your path into cybersecurity as well because you have an interesting one. Uh, just not a kind of a traditional path. So can you know what was your path into cybersecurity? Well, so let's see. So my background go extends before Verica. I was the chief security architect of United Health Group, and at the company I led the DevOps. I was part of leading the DevOps transformation, cloud transformation, open source transformation. Actually, our the first open source tool for United Health Group, the largest healthcare company in the world, yeah, uh, wow. was, was Chaos Slinger, which was the first ever application of Netflix's Chaos Engineering to cybersecurity. And we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, throughout the rest of the show, but. My background, like thematically, probably extends from like, I started off in systems and network engineering. And then I remember like I was more experienced as I was in the military, like learned most of it in the military. I was most, yep. more experienced than most people uh, twice my age at, at the time. I couldn't get the job. I couldn't get a job early on. And you know, my experience was all hands-on. Uh, and if I could get a job on as a software engineer, so I knew nothing about software. <laughs> so uh, uh, my background in school was finance and economics. I was going to, I went in investment banking for a short period of time. But so I learned software engineering. Basically, I started with databases and then I worked my way to the front ends and then I started building my own apps. I think I'm very thankful for the open source world. That's where I learned most of what to do right. Uh, But um, but anyway, I was a software engineer for a little over a decade and I ended up working for NASA for a number of years. I actually worked in safety and reliability engineering. So I was going to ask you about the NASA thing as well. Like, what's up with NASA? (laughs) Yep. Yep. You know, actually, I, I got laid off years ago, and, you know, NASA was the first place to call me. Like, hey, would you like to come out and work on space stuff? I'm like, space, you know, like, you know. So, yeah, sounds exciting. Uh, so I went out there to be a software engineer, and I built apps and uh, software applications for safety and reliability engineering. And yep. this opportunity came up to to do the security role, because one, they didn't want to hire extra headcount to do it. And I'm like, sure, I'll do it, right? So oh, I right. Uh, then I got into it. Then, like, it turned out to be, Turns out if you're an engineer and you've been a builder most of your career and you get into security, it's a pretty fast accelerant because like you can't lie to me how things are really built, right? Yeah. Like, but I also have a, an ability or the facility to receive and transmit empathy right with somebody, right? Is that yeah. I understand like, hey, building stuff that's never been built before is hard, right? Like, and yeah. I'm not trying to make your life any harder. I'm just trying to teach you on what we have to do to make things secure. Right. And, That's and right. That kind of took my career just like this way because I wasn't constantly fighting people. I was I was able to enable them and lift them up. And so that I mean, from NASA to a bunch of other places in between. But I ended up at United, then I ended up here. So. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. By the way, before we go into the crux of the questions, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> cheers. What is that, by the way? It's all whiskey. You know, American American drink whiskey. No. Oh, American street whiskey. <laughs> no, this was actually black tea with aloe vera. It's, um, can you do that? I didn't even realize you could do that, but well, there yeah, you go. There's always. So this black tea has no sugar in it, right? But the aloe vera, the acidity from it, uh, combining with the black tea kind of makes it like a sweeter kind of taste so oh, you can without the sugar. Right. Yeah. Cause I was going to say, I'm not a black tea kind of person, but black tea with aloe vera may be interesting. 
getting into the crux of this, what is chaos engineering? Please just demystify this weird and at the same time mysterious concept for us. Sure. So I'll give you my definition. Mm. So chaos engineering is the idea of introducing turbulent conditions into a system to try to determine the to try to determine the conditions by which a system will fail before it actually fails. Because a lot of times we don't learn, you know, about what was wrong in the system until after the fact, or like that there was some hidden failure. You know, I'm gonna tell I'll tell a brief story. Maybe this story kind of helps me explain chaos engineering to people, and sometimes people relate with it better. You know, yeah. early on in our first year as a company, we met with basically 100 large companies across the world. I'm trying to figure out what tech stacks to build to and align to. And we met with one of the largest payment processing companies, and they were talking about how they had this legacy application. They're like, she was talking to him, and I was just kind of eating my lunch, you know, uh, <sighs> just listening to this conversation. And they're talking, he was this, this chief engineer was talking about how, you know, we have this legacy application. It basically does 90% of our revenue for the company. Uh, right. It's a trusted application. The engineers know it. They're competent. There is rarely an outage. Like, like, and we want to move it all over Kubernetes because that product line is scaling and, and, and changing, right? And so, like, but it got me thinking. It got me thinking. Uh, uh, you know, it was kind of an epiphany. It's like, I was like, hmm, how do systems become stable, right? Was that legacy system always stable, right? Like, was it always so well known? Was it always? Did you always have the right engineers? Like, was it like? You know, a lot of times our systems become stable because we end up learning through a series of unforeseen accidents and mistakes or surprises uh, yep. what we didn't know. But often that process itself is incurred, that learning is incurred through tremendous pain. One for the engineers worrying about being blamed, named, and chained, right, for causing an incident outage. You know, on top of that, you know, customers encounter pain, right? Like they had, they're frustrated. They may have lost customers, you know, but it doesn't have to be that way. Like chaos engineering is a way to proactively inject failure into the system. Hypotheses, right? If I have designed, I know in my mind for a fact that the system will respond with what, right? We never do a chaos experiment. We know it's going to fail. If you know it's going to fail, just fix it. You're not going to learn anything new. You know it already doesn't work, right? So the idea is to question the system, uh, ask the system questions about things you know to be true you think are true. And what's funny actually is the first time you try that, I guarantee you, uh, you're wrong, right? Because I've never seen, I mean, there may be somebody who gets it right. I, there's going to be somebody. I love I, how you I, put this. So chaos engineering experiment should never fail. No, it should never, you should never do when you know is going to fail because you're not going to learn anything. Right? All like, right. All right. So if you know a system is going to go down, then technically it's, you know, it's a failed experiment to begin with. Yeah, exactly. So, like, you just go ahead and fix that thing. You know, yeah. like, like, engineers, like, you know, let me explain it this way also. It's really kind of changing the mindset from the post-mortem being the after-the-fact, you know, exercise where you think you know what happened and people spend three hours and sometimes they document it well, sometimes they don't, usually only for SEV ones, and then, then screw everything else because we don't have time for that because we're going to war room, to war room, to war room, right? Instead of do all that after yeah. the fact, proactively – because people are kind of freaking out during instance and after the fact, people kind of forget what happened, right? And like, you know, and, but proactively, your eyes are wide open. It's all rainbows and, and you know, and kittens, right? You're not worried about like, you know, an incident because there isn't one. Like you're proactively injecting these conditions. Hey, did it work? Yes or no, right? Well, why didn't it? Okay, rerun the experiment. Yes, did, like it allows you to uncover these hidden failures you didn't know about without incurring the pain. I mean, in general, that's how I like to explain it. And it's the same thing as applied to security. Interesting. And I think 
is a question that can just came in that I want to take on as well. She probably should see on your screen as well. Is fuzzing part of chaos engineering? Fuzzing so there's a lot of similarity between you know, actually I'm glad you asked me that question cuz I get that question a lot and I have I didn't write I didn't address that in the O'Reilly book. So I'm taking oh. note of that. <laughs> like so there's actually a I just finished a manuscript on the first security chaos engineering O'Reilly book. Kelly Shortridge is my co-author. You guys might Right, know right. Going out from the book by the way. She's usually quite known for her steaming. Well, one, she's an excellent speaker in, in you know, mind and cybersecurity, but she always comments on RSA and, and sort of grills them every year. But she's known for that. Her swag at our blog is awesome. Um, You're not painting a great picture for Kelly, by the way, just saying. Uh, no, no, Kelly is one of the brightest minds in cybersecurity. Um, oh, there you go. You, you saved yourself there. No, no she, you, you'll, you'll get to see all of her writing and. No, so is fuzzing part of chaos engineering? No, it's not really. Fuzzing is something we do as part of the application security testing lifecycle. I mean, it's there's some similarities between fuzzing, between uh, red teaming, between purple teaming, and breach and attack simulation tools. There are similarities, you know, but I see fuzzing as a form of testing versus experimentation. I'll break down instrumentation. So it's a loose definition, but uh, testing is the verification or validation of something we already know to be true or false. What we're really trying to do with fuzzing is kind of ensure that what we think is right is actually right. Like, like we're not, what we're trying to do with chaos engineering is, is instrument the system as a whole post-deployment. So what happens is, so take for, take for an account, let's say you have a modern software application that's 10 microservices, right? You have yeah. payments, billing, Rx, I'll be using healthcare because it comes to me easily. You know, you've got medical coding, what, you got 10 of them, right? Get ten yeah. different teams, probably. Maybe they just have the same release schedule. Maybe they're different. Maybe they're releasing ten times a week, ten times a day, what have you. So they're all releasing their features and functions and code, and you know uh, the application it gets released, right? You never in for microservices, you never had just have three or four, right? You usually have what? I mean, you never had just have one. You usually have three or four of each. That's why, right, yeah. But sometimes you have three or four more because you're running blue green deployments. You have older versions, and newer versions. Are you testing out a particular feature amongst a certain user base? So you're kind of rolling things out, but to magnify that times the other other rest of the ten, right? So you have ten different groups of groups of humans delivering a different cadence, sometimes the same, and you have all these microservices that you're delivering, right? Yep. Sometimes you also have older versions of all those microservices because some other functions are needed for other services because their microservices are not dependent, even though we like to think they are. They're interdependent upon each other, right? And so you have this massive ecosystem of microservices and humans and interactions and changes, right? It's the size, scale, and complexity we've kind of never seen before. Mm-hmm. It kind of still applies to or more legacy applications. But I can address that later. But like yeah. fuzzing is something we more address for each individual microservice or like maybe the front end. Like, right, uh, right. It's like, well, but it's, I'm not saying fuzzing is not important. There are similar, what I'm saying is there's overlaps in, between the concepts because you're injecting unexpected variables into the system. But what we're trying to exercise is not the microservice itself. We're trying to exercise the emergent properties of what safety sh- safety and security should be as a system. Like, oh, so it's like same, same, but not related. Different. I guess that's what I was going to say. Yeah. I'll tell you what, like for that question, I'll make sure you get uh, a copy of the, the Security Chaos Engineering book when it comes out. Oh, there you go. All right. Yeah, you, I can coordinate with that because I know Vineet as well. By the way, someone else asked, Charles asked a question about what's the name of the book. Didn't pop the book again on the screen. Oh, sure. Yeah. And Charles. So- Yep. Charles, yep. by the way, there's a chance to be win the book as well. If you're interested, go to the website link, verica.io slash book. Yeah, B-E-R-I-C-A dot I-O slash book. Uh, Charles, and- you, can, you can win it. Good luck, man. 
Otherwise, reach out. Aaron is a good guy. He loves giving out free books. So just ping yeah, me fine. and I'll ping him. <laughs> Appreciate the support as well. I, I love the fact that you're offering. So you guys heard it first. If you ask a question, which is good, you get a free book. Right. Just, just just come out. Uh, keep, keep asking questions, people. Keep asking questions. Another concept, which is kind of related to chaos engineering, is application fault injection, application resiliency, like no concept that I used to think is in a very SRE kind of concept. Like, are they, is that related to SRE or like, and chaos engineering is part of it? Or like, how does that all relate? Because you know how every Google search that I did for uh, chaos engineering is more about how do I build application resiliency? And it's all about fault injection. And for people who don't know what, application fault injection, you kind of explained it earlier when you were trying to differentiate between fuzzing and application, I guess, what it's like. Is there an example of application fault injection from a cloud perspective? Because I've got a lot of people over here who are primarily working in the public cloud space. And I know you've done some work in the AWS space with Netflix as well and other, other places. Are there simple examples, maybe one or two examples that you can share for application fault injection and how can I use that uh, as a chaos experiment? to build application resiliency? I'm not a long question, but essentially I'm just offering an example of a chaos experiment in a public cloud. Well, I think it's, I think it's given the uh, familiarity with people as they responded on the survey with chaos engineering, it's always important to explain, you know, maybe I'll explain a couple of contexts around chaos engineering that most people never talk about. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I have the luxury of kind of having the beginning of the of the story more clearer than most people do uh and because of knowing casey that's and, why i have you here man i wanted to go to the source as far as close to the source as possible well i've gotten to know casey bruce wong and yep. and a number of other people in the space the, the, the next on my list uh, and uh, casey so casey really kind of made chaos engineering a thing right beyond just netflix right it all started back with chaos monkey remember netflix in 2008 2009 had decided, you know what? We're going to be bold as a company, right? We're going to change the way we operate and we're, and we're going to define the future by streaming, right? They move from DVDs to streaming, right? And this is when Reed Hastings has also released the memo. So we're going to hire the only senior engineers. We're going to hire the best people, no brilliant jerks, all, all that, like, you know, all that stuff, right? That memo that changed the world. But uh, as a process of that, so they went forth this ambitious kind of engineering strategy to to stream these massive movies over the internet, over the, over the internet, which is we all know one of the number one fallacies of distributed computing is the network is never reliable. So that's that's going to be hard to do if the network's yeah. not reliable. So they, what they started doing was so they started building out their streaming services on Amazon Web Services, right? And what was happening was is that oh I didn't address. Let me get back to answer the first question. SREs. So Chaos Engineering was real, originally designed as a tool set for SREs. Okay. It was not, it's not a, it wasn't really designed to be a practice or like a job. It was designed to be a tool series of tools. So, okay. So, so back to the chaos monkey story, right? So yeah. we went to build out the, their streaming services on Amazon web services. What was happening was, is that, uh, remember this is Netflix's cloud transformation. So a lot of people will tell me, they'll say, Aaron, oh, we can't do chaos engineering. We can barely do the DevOps stuff. You know, we're struggling with the cloud. Whoa, 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 whoa. Netflix started doing chaos engineering during their transformation. Now I'm going to kind of explain that with the chaos monkey story. So right. as they're building out these services, what was happening was is AMIs were just disappearing. It, it was just a feature of, 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 of Amazon Web Services at that point in time, right? Like, uh, but they were just disappearing. So what... Uh, Is it, was it a feature? Like how old, no, how long ago were you talking? I'm just joking. It's not, was it wasn't a feature. Nobody knows I was going to say like, wow, it's like... 
Great feature, Amazon. Nobody knows why. I actually have a friend of mine that's a Kiwi. He always calls him Emmys. So I'm gonna. So Emmys were just disappearing. Yeah. So, uh, uh, anyway, uh, that would be scary. That would be really scary. Imagine like production system suddenly. Oh, I can't find the Amy anymore. Like what? What is like? Yeah. Right. Not really reliable. Well, what, yep. well, so what they did was they said, okay, we're going to design our system to be resilient to this kind of problem, right? Right. So we went for it. They built their this. They built their system to be resilient to that particular problem, and now they need a way to test it. But you know, and so they went to Amazon and said, hey, will you provide us a way to do this? And they said, no. Uh, that's a violation of our agreement. You can, but you can do it all day yourself, right? So they, right. they added a tool called Chaos Monkey that during business hours, it will pseudo-randomly take down an AMI. So really what this did was, it, it, the point of it was not to cause chaos. The point of it was is to put a well-defined problem in front of an engineer. The problem was for an engineer is that during the day, during business hours, when my service is supposed to be running, delivering value to customer, this thing can happen to me, right? So it turns out if you put well-defined problems in front of engineers, they solve them, right? Uh, and that's really what it's about. It's about providing context to engineers that they previously did not have so they can change their behavior and, and, and improve the way the system operates proactively. Proactively is one of the key things. This is not a reactive sort of mean time to detect, mean time to repair kind of thing. Dude, I think, and to your point of, it's such a mindset thing though. Because, wait, are we doing this in production or dev? Like, where oh. are we going? Are we doing this like, obviously, I imagine my, me going to my my boss, my CEO, or us, and he's like, I'm going to test chaos engineering in production. How would that conversation go? Like, I can't imagine people saying yes to that that easily. So do, does it have to be in production? Or does no. it require a mindset change overall? No, so it is a mindset change. I mean, the cloud was a mindset change. DevOps was a mindset change. You know, SRE is a mindset change. Chaos engineering <laughs> is a mindset change, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, really, chaos engineering is about continuously verifying that the system works the way you think it does. Versus like, I mean, like, so it's, it's, there's a vast difference between how you think the system works versus how it works in reality, right? I'm going to get to the, the dev product question, right? So right. that what happens is when we design system, it's like systems engineering is a very, 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 very messy exercise. Real work right. context is messy, guys. I mean, like, we like to think that there's this beautiful 3D diagram, right? Like just as an architect, I used to love this. You know, I used to have a solutions architects and a database architect come to me with different diagrams of the same system. Like our context, our mental model of how we believe the system works is vastly different than how it works in reality. You know, even if the system works like that diagram day zero, day one, quickly we move into a series of unforeseen events, right? There's an outage on a payments API, you have to hard code a token, right? Google hires your best engineer, or Atlassian hires your best engineer. You know, new engineers come in, they have to they're not as new to the code. Like people make people make mistakes, people make changes. You know, there's outages. There's there's you know there's scanning results. We have to stop. We have to fix that. Like it's slowly, we people lose their context of what the system really is, right? So we're so if we're constantly making changes to a system we don't really understand, bad things are bound to happen, right? So what we're trying to do yep. is proactively understand that. So when it comes back to so when it comes back to this whole prod thing, right? Chaos engineering. Let me just put it in quotes. I probably just put it like exclamation marks. Chaos engineering is not breaking stuff in production. It, it never okay. happened. It never will be. Right. It's it's okay. about it's about fixing things. Right. And, and it's about building a culture of continuous learning, not continuous fixing. And so you don't never you can never do chaos engineering in production and still get tremendous value. So there is a, there's this example of one of the large retail companies that did, they had, they were going to do their first chaos engineering. 
exercise or what they call game day, which is manual chaos engineering. Uh, right. And they, they brought Casey in to do a tech talk. So he was still at Netflix then. He went, he went there and they said, Casey, you know, you know, we, we're not going to do chaos engineering production. We're going to do, do it on dev. And what we're going to do is we're going to bring down a Kafka node and we assume another one's going to come back up and all the, you know, and then the, it'll be a rebalance and, and all the, you know, the traffic and, and messages will be just fine. Right. So what they went forth, they scheduled it. Casey was there and they actually brought down one of the nodes uh, and on the, on the dev environment. Cause can anyone guess what happened? No, I can't. I, but I, 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 I wonder if it never came up. Prod went down. Right. What? So what happened is they forgot to change. Oh. The, they forgot to change the point of information, right? Because you know uh, it's real easy. The system engineering work is messy. It, it's it's not that they intentionally did that. But what was great about that was even though they did it in dev, right? They treat it like a real exercise, and all the people that needed like all the people that needed to make the changes, get it back up and running, were there. And they saw it. And it was back up very quickly, right? But like even in dev, they learned a lot about prod, right? Like. And, you know, it's, it's, a, I mean, you, there's a maturity. So with chaos engineering, especially when it comes to tools uh, yeah. and technique, it's always start in low environments. I mean, make sure you understand the tool, make sure you're competent in the technique, make sure everybody kind of understands what's, what's going on. We never hide what chaos engineering we do in the open. We're transparent. Yeah. Everyone should learn from this. You should not like, try to be sneaky with it. Right. Like, oh yeah. You know, yeah actually, then, that's true. That's yeah. a good way to put it. Um, I was gonna because I think right. I th you all you already answered a question from uh, I think that's David Raviv. He's a good guy with her New York. He's, he's, he was talking about tell us a story of epic fails after testing. I think you kind of answered that question already. He's got another question: How does chaos engineering affects readiness in terms of incident response? Oh God, I love, man, it feels like you're reading my mind. Whoever said that? <laughs> this is David um, Raviv, by the way, great oh, guy. I can't, I can't I can't read at the bottom because I, I like anyway. Oh, um, uh, right, right. I, I'll, I'll so, but did you get the question? Exactly. It was, how okay. does, yeah, cool. So I got it. I got it. So actually, this is one of my favorite use cases. I actually started off with chaos engineering for security in terms of security control validation. So as an, I'm going to answer the question. So as an architect, I, I was always concerned about my recommendations, whether they actually got implemented, whether they're correct, because I want to do my job well. I believe in what I did. I believe I, and I want to help people, right? Uh, and, but I was never sure if my recommendations ever actually made it there, right? Like, and so what I need a way, I need a way to kind of ask the computer uh, quite, skip ahead of all those people and ask the, I, an objective question to the machines, right? And so it was, I was really kind of about security control validation. But the second mm -hmm. case that I found a lot of value in, because when I were demoing the security control validation piece of Chaos Slinger to my boss, the, the CISO at the time, he's like, Aaron, you know, he kind of piqued my interest. He's like, Aaron, like, you know, I love the way this helps us uh, validate our controls proactively. But like, man, it's really a great tool for keeping the instant response team sharp. So I started thinking about, you know, how does this really kind of work in instant response? So really instant response in general, the problem with this response is it's response, right? Is that you're kind of like, you know, no matter how security side, no matter how much money you spend, how much time you uh, spend preparing, how many people you have, you still don't know a lot of things. You don't know when it's going to happen, why it's going to happen, who's going to, who's trying to get in, why they're trying to get in and how, how they're, how they're doing it. Right. Uh, and all that preparation, you're not sure whether controls actually fire in the right situations that you need them to. So what we did was, so, but chaos engineer, we're not kind of waiting for an event to happen. We're not like hoping that when said event happens, things actually all fall into place, right? We're not doing yeah. that, right? But, and also we're not assuming that when we actually caught the event was the beginning of it. Because when you detected it, it's probably not the beginning of the event. 
and we always love to think of things in root cause, right? Like meaning there's one event that caused caused that image, right? It's almost a yep. multi, it's almost always a multitude of different things and processes and people and things as a process of it, right? But it's always simpler and easier after the fact to point to figure out one person or thing. But uh, what's great about instant the instant response use case with chaos engineering in general is we get to start the event. We're the initiator of that signal. Like, yeah. like, and we can do it whenever we want to do it. We're in control of it. So proactively, we introduced this condition. And now, because we know the conditions by which it started, we can kind of remember, like, if, in this process, we're not, there is no real incident, right? People are not kind of freaking out. We tell people we're doing this. So we can kind of learn, did we have enough people on call? Were they the right people? Uh, did the, was the, were the run books actually correct for that type of event? Did the log data actually make sense to a human? Right. Like like when an incident's happening, you're trying to figure out what the hell happened through all this different log dated events. And and like, you know, some of it's like, what the hell does this event even mean? I don't know. Let's get throw it away. Like, let's let's, <laughs> let's let's go with what we can. Like you're trying to figure things out and, and what a timeline is. It's like, but proactive, we can we can introduce this condition and we can say, hey, did the technology work that we're supposed to? Did we have the right yeah. Would this be like a tabletop exercise? Or, or I mean, chaos engineering would be part of a tabletop exercise where you're say you have your CEO, CIO, everyone sitting down trying to do a demo run of a runbook of an incident. You you could actually have a, I guess a dashboard with all the chaos engineering tests you've already done, and it would be I, I guess that's I just imagine in my head where the entire system has a few experiments going on, and you if any of those fails in a tabletop scenario you know you have something to fix. But otherwise, then all the known scenarios should not really happen and you, should, you shouldn't really need to have to go down a root cause path for something that you already have an experiment for. Exactly, that- exactly. So so I'll, I'll just root cause more, more listily in a second. But like, yeah, so like once a chaos, I like to, I'm a big fan of your initial chaos experiment you if you, that you come up with, right? To do it as a manual game day exercise. You know, it's a great mm-hmm. exercise, only a few hours. You know, you get the people from that are different parts of the business in the same room, you know, and we get to all learn about how the system really works. And yeah. like, usually pick things that like you expect, like if this happened, like we cover this, like a misconfigured firewall rule, or, I'm sorry, a mis- yeah, misconfigured uh, firewall rule, like we would totally catch that and block that, no problem, right? And uh, you, everyone gets to test it, but everyone gets to see you're wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, no matter with your firewall engineer, you're the CISO, you're the you're the uh, network engineer that runs the switches or the low balance guy person or the help desk person or the like everyone gets to see, oh crap, we were wrong together. It, bu- it builds this kind of like camaraderie across yep. different functions of people you've never met before. But once you were right though, once a chaos experiment becomes sort of successful, that you were right about how the system actually worked and you validated it. Now you can kind of start thinking, this is where more of the sophistication comes in with the advanced tooling, is that it becomes more of a regression test now, right? Yeah. Constantly right to ensure that that, the, that that those KPIs still actually remain true. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so. Cool. And the, just to confirm, so David Raviv does get a copy of the book as well, free copy of the book. He's the guy who asked the question. Make sure, so, you, make sure you guys send, uh, I can't see it. So make sure you send like messages to uh, Ashish and I'll make sure to get your, send your contact info too so I can. Yep. I yeah, I think I've got all these people in my contacts, so I'll definitely oh, cool. be because questions are flowing in because you've been so generous with your book offer. The questions are flowing in. I'll, I'll just move to the next question. It's from Charles. What impact does it have on automation? Do you have examples of how chaos engineering helps improve security? Oh my gosh! So uh, I, I treat those questions as two different things. So how does it impact automation, and how does it improve security? I'm going to address them. Maybe and then maybe I'll come together with it. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, that sounds good. So, um, so automation. So back in 1983, a woman, a uh, software engineer actually, wrote a, a three-page paper called The Ironies of Automation. It has never been disproven, right? Is that there are certain ironies with automation is that a lot of people think you need less people, but you actually need more. Once you write the automation, it has to be maintained. And, and in order to write more automation, you need more people, right? So on top of that, you know, once you replace a skilled function with automation, uh, a skilled series of steps with automation, now you have an unskilled worker monitoring something that a skilled worker used to be able to do. And if, and if the monitoring ends up being wrong, that unskilled person can no longer intervene where the skilled person could have. Right. So over time, if that thing so continues to be red or yellow, they just like, oh, that thing is always red. That thing is always yellow. I don't know. I don't know why. Right. Like and what happens is you need monitoring for monitoring and alerting for alerting. So uh, there's it's a great paper and you definitely should read it. It's like three pages. There's no excuse. For, like, not reading right. It. Right. Uh, yeah. Like the point of it is, is like is that automation like like requires maintenance. It, it's it, it's just code and, and there's complexity in it and it changes all the time. What we're doing with chaos engineering is proactively introduce the conditions by which the automation should be successful and asking it a question like, Hey, mm -hmm. are you still working the way you're supposed to? Are you still working the way you're supposed to? Like, because it's not just automation and isolation on like one service or one AMI or one thing. It's yeah. the system must emerge, must uh, have emergent properties, must emerge certain properties as a whole, how it operates. Right. Like, and that's where, that's where we kind of fall down is, is it's when all these different things in a complex system start interacting, you get non-linear outcomes, right? Like one plus one no longer equals two. You get like negative three, right? Or negative 4,000, right? It's because the ripple effect throughout the system, right? So you need to constantly verify or continuously verify the system works the way it's supposed to. Now on security side, all everything I've set up to this point on this podcast directly applies to security, right? Yep. As being an engineer most of my career, Right, like I never believed, I never got into that rut where I think that there's a system and it's security. The system is either secure or it's not, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the security is part of the system. Uh, and and uh, you know, what was this? Is that, is that so? The security suffers from all the same holistic problems in building things. In that we're building at such scale, size, scale, speed, and complexity to, uh, to today's world, it's so easy to make a mistake, right? And, I, and my mistakes, I mean, accidents and mistakes like, you know, uh, a permissive account or leaving a port open uh, that didn't need to be open or because when you're building things, come on, guys, yep. building things is a process of like of this. Mm, that didn't work. That didn't work. Hey, oh, it kind of works. Hey, it kind of works. <laughs> right? like, and it's a combination of that. But like, we're trying to figure out stuff that no one else figured out. We're trying to build. And like, you know, the process, you're not sure what the lockdown or what permissions you need because you haven't created the, the objects yet. Like, so like what, what happens is, but like we're, then we, we're introducing the, these changes into this overall larger ecosystem. It's so easy that because you didn't understand how the tart, how it interacted holistically, you understand your stuff, might not understand yep. how the rest of the things work. But the security, when you're trying to fit that into that environment, it, it's easy to make mistakes. So what we're trying to do, if you look at the majority of actually the breach data, it's like the simplest things are causing these problems. It's like, and like it's and what we're so what we're trying to do is inject these low hanging fruit into the system. Because if you look at the majority of malicious code, if, if, if you can go on like the virus websites and and they always have breakdowns of like the steps of the code, it usually requires some kind of really stupid thing to exist, right? Like yeah. most of it does. There's some advanced stuff. Okay, don't get me wrong. But like the majority of it's crap code. If you're a software engineer, you'd be like, oh my God, this is horrible, right? Like <laughs> you look at it, it's like it requires some kind of like permissive account or 
port or deprecated version of some dependency or software. So what we're trying to do with security chaos engineering, inject those conditions in the system to ensure we can catch them faster than an adversary can exploit them. Oh, right. And I, I kind of understand how it kind of affects security, not just security, I guess. And it kind of brings back to the point of application resiliency as well. So, which is kind of security because your availability is one of those pillars of security kind of have to maintain as well. It's kind of pointless to have a system which is not available 24-7 or whatever the SLA for that is. So I get Charles gets a book. So I feel like an Oprah moment at the moment. It's just like, you get a book, you get a book, you get a book, and get a book. So Charles, I'll reach out to you as well, man. I've got another question from Vinny. Are there any particular tools that are used for chaos engineering and are they open source? Oh, all kinds. Um, you can drop Chaos so, Slinger in there as well. I'll have to drop Chaos. So Chaos Slinger, I left United Health Group three, oh, so two years ago now. Right. Uh, but like we wrote Chaos Slinger about four years ago. It's so with Chaos Slinger, if you go to github.com slash, I think it's like chaos slash optum. Well, anyway, type in Chaos Slinger, C H A O S L I N G R. Uh, yep. And that's the repo on GitHub. And what you'll what you'll find about Chaos Slinger is that one, it's a runnable tool. You can you can implement it and run it and run the base experiment. But like I left United Health Group, I was a sponsor of that, so it's now it's no longer really maintained as an open source project. It's still out there. It still represents the framework on how you can write experiments. There are four four different functions you need to write. It's all serverless, right? So it's there is a generator, there is right. Slinger, and there is Tracker, and then there's the documentation of the experiment, right? So there's uh, generator does target acquisition based upon Amazon um, reference tags because uh, you opt as an opt-in, opt-out kind of function with it. Um, right. And so you, it finds the, the security groups by which you want to actually inject the misconfigured port. Two is a tracker. It tracks all the changes and reports them out to Slack. Three is a Slinger. A Slinger actually executes the uh, opening or closing of a port. And so Port Slinger was just the first example. We actually wrote several experiments. And, but United Health Group now uses it internally as, an, as more of an internal tool. And they, they actually linked it through their, their CIT pipelines, I believe, last time I checked. But, but so in terms of chaos engineering tools in general, there's some great stuff being done. Obviously, Verica, uh, the company I yeah, represent. Most uh, take out Verica, of course. It's, a, uh, it's, a, it's more of a commercial tool set. We may open source something at some point, but like we're trying to evolve chaos engineering into the, the way we do chaos engineering and the way everyone else does it is completely different. We're trying to actually make it more extensible and easier for people to, to utilize it, but also we don't make up failure modes, right? The kind of failure modes you see from us are actually recreated from real, the real world. We don't just kill VMs and pods and things like that. We actually have documented from real world companies on how the weird things that really happen to cause failure. And we actually re, re, programmatically structured that into a product. Uh, and it's really interesting, the kind of stuff that we can learn. So if you're interested, reach out. But in terms of open source projects, I kind of like the Chaos Toolkit. They're, they're, they're all very successful. Russ Miles and Sylvan are good friends of ours. Um, right. It's a great place to learn and how to do Chaos experiments in Python. So that also makes it easy. I believe there's an agent involved. So a lot of the Chaos engineering tools have agents. So you have to be, we don't, <laughs> but, but you, have to, you have to be concerned with that. But, you know, I like the Chaos Toolkit. Uh, there's, there's one for Kubernetes. I'm sorry, shoot, what am I thinking of? Written by Bloomberg. I can't think of it all the time. Oh, powerful seal, powerful seal. Yes, that's uh, right. I was like, it's, it's, the name is right there, and it's a good segue into my next question. What, where do you see the trend going between 
say, and I think this would answer the question for the next one as well, which is David has asked in terms of when would this go mainstream? Like how long before this make becomes mainstream? So curious to know from your side, what are you seeing as a, I guess, as a trend from where it was and where it is going uh, with serverless and Kubernetes kind of on containers now taking over the world? Where, where do you see that going? So chaos engineering, I see chaos engineering as a practice in general. I see, I think over the next five years, it's going to be more of a, I think right now we're tracking about 13 to 1400 companies kind of experimenting and are, are utilizing chaos engineering. It used to be right. like Fang and Silicon Valley doing it, right? Or like, you know, those types of companies, right? But it's evolved from banks to healthcare. I mean, the largest health companies, companies in the world are doing it. The largest banks, largest healthcare, you know, some of the largest retail companies, they're all, a lot of people have their, written their own tools in-house. In, in I've actually seen some amazing in-house chaos engineering tools stitched together from the open source stuff and blogs. And what's great is now there's actually, what, what we're missing was a body of knowledge. Now there's a body of knowledge, all the different companies have like have their own, how they do chaos engineering in here how they, you know, what the maturity life cycle looks like. It's a great book, but the the security chaos engineering one, uh, also I, I kind of have a mock-up of the thing of it, but like, yep. but that's, uh, that will have all, how all the companies doing security chaos engineering, which is a little bit, a little bit different, like I said, from a use case perspective, but you'd be surprised at the companies you see there. They're quite large and quite what you would think is more legacy oriented, but there right. are things where they had to think differently. And a lot of times what everyone who I've talked to that does security chaos engineering comes to me by Aaron. Oh, we actually tried it. I guess what we found out, like our security didn't really work. <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, like, hey, we, we, we found us out proactively. We were able to do something about it. Like we try to make that case to management. It's like, do you want to learn through accidentally finding out something, something was messed up? Or do you want to learn proactively when you have an ability to do something about it? Right? Like, and that, that's, that's really what's powerful about it. Yeah, and I think I'm quickly going to ask because a lot of people who would be, I guess, listeners, especially the guys who've been asking questions as well, what, what's the simplest experiment they can start with? Like, does it have to be like a really complicated one or can it, how, is it just a matter of whether my SSH ports are open? Is that like a good test? Or because it sounds like it needs to be like a massive test for production to go down, but does it need to be that complicated? No, it doesn't. I mean, like, you know, actually, in all honesty, a, so I mean, you know, Chaos Monkey, I mean, how long did Chaos Monkey just have that simple AMI termination experiment? They got so much value. One experiment, it's like martial arts, right? Like if you learn one technique and you're just really good at it, right? And then just like, then you're, you're dynamite, right? It's kind of the same with Chaos Engineering. You get good with one experiment, like that, that condition may be true in one instance or one environment, but when you can do it to another one, conditions are different. Like, in, and it's like, you get good at one experiment and constantly doing it, you're still going to learn a lot. You know, just with just with Chaos Slinger in the port slinger experiment of introducing a misconfigured port, I can actually go through that example if you want me to go through an example of how that works. But like, yeah, I think it'll be it'll be it'll be awesome. I, I'm because I I guess the because there's another question that came in from Darpan, which I thought is is probably going to hit the you can probably. So the question that came through from Darpan is after attaining what maturity level in cloud journey or the security posture do you suggest is the appropriate time to start doing these exercises? I think that's a great place to start. And then we kind of go into the example. What do you think? Sure. Yeah, let's definitely do that. So almost everyone I know who does chaos engineering or has done it, I mean, like there's a couple exceptions, are in some kind of cloud journey. Uh, right, so, right. So they're not advanced. Right. Yeah, they're not. Even the companies you think, well, the things I learned over the last, this is just 
me being me. Like one thing I learned over the last year and a half of meeting all these different companies, I've been about 100, 120 companies, is that the companies you think are transformed are not. The companies you didn't think were transformed actually are about more transformed than some of the companies that are say they are. Uh, so it's quite interesting. Uh, but everyone's kind of like, so when you do cloud transformation, what often happens is you, most, most of the time, executives often have unrealistic timelines, right? They always blame the fact that they don't have the right people, right? The people that they have don't have the right skills. They need to change or need to evolve, right? And it's like, you know, if they bring in Amazon or so, some, I forget on Amazon, but like bring in some cloud provider and their professional service to do it, but it's a company really learning. Are you just kind of, you know, like hoping that they'll pick up the, pick, pick it up in the meantime, right? But like, it's like, it's a transformational exercise, right? Meaning that what chaos engineering does is as you're kind of building things, as you're in their building or, or let's say refactoring for it to build a, what a lift and shift would be to actually a cloud native kind of application, you know, you want to, you need, you need a feedback mechanism. It's fundamental in all engineering and science. You need yep. instrumentation testing to know whether something works or it doesn't. Engineers don't believe in luck or hope, right? It either works or it doesn't, right? So what we yep. need is a way to tell us, hey, it's not working or it's working, right? So what we're doing in chaos engineering is we're injecting what we expect to be working or not, right? And and we're doing that. So it's, you know, it could be, you know, when you're, uh, I mean, uh, when you've got more of like, I guess I'm trying to think of one of the cloud evolution of an app, the way people do things is kind of different, but like when you've got something where you're running in stage that kind of functions, maybe it's a good opportunity to start running some, so just some simple scripts, scripts against it, right? That's really what you're doing. You can just, you can actually do what most chaos engineering experiments do with a bash script, right? Kill a service, right? Bring down a VM, bring out a pod, right? Like see, see how the system responds, right? See if all the, all the other things that are supposed to occur, occurred. So like with chaos singer, let me give you an example, being that example, right? So yep. port singer was a primary example of chaos singer because I needed an example that I could explain how to do it to a software engineer, a network engineer, cloud engineer, no matter what you do, everybody kind of knows what a firewall is, right? So uh, what we, we were very new to AWS at the time during our cloud transformation. And what we expected when we introduced a misconfigured port, an open or closed port that wasn't supposed to be open or closed, is we expected a firewall to immediately detect a bucket and to be a non-issue, right? And so we started doing this. And remember, a misconfigured and unauthorized port change can happen for all kinds of you know, um, non-malicious sort of reasons, meaning like somebody couldn't, a lot of software engineers don't understand network flow and mm -hmm. it's, it's a kind of a mindset thinking. And it could be that you just filled the ticket out wrong. It could be that you, that you got implemented wrong. It could be lots of different things could be, could lead up to a mistake or accident like, or intentional change like that. Well, so what we expected, like I said, is, is uh, that kind of thing is so duh for security people to think of like, Detected bucket, not issue. Well, that only worked about sixty percent of the time when we started running it. And what, what the problem was, there was a, there was a drift between how we were configuring things in non-commercial and our commercial software environments. And so we were able to proactively fix that because remember there was no incident. Nobody's freaking out, right? That's fine. We learned. Yeah. Yep. Now the second thing we we learned was that the 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 cloud native configuration management tool caught it and blocked it every time, every time, right? The thing we were barely paying for caught it and blocked the change every time. So that was the second thing. <laughs> the, third, the third, I know, right? The third thing was, is we expect a good log data to come from both and it to correlate some kind of event that, hey, this kind of weird thing happened uh, to our SOC, our Security Operations Center. We didn't have a yeah. SIM, we had our own log tool, but either way, it still worked. That part worked. Like it correlated an event, went to the SOC. When the SOC announced got it, they're like, which AWS account is this? 
right? Because we're very new to AWS, kind of still figuring things out. And what, what they found out was um, they couldn't figure out which, if it was not commercial or commercial. Now, as an engineer, you're like, come on, duh, you can just map back the IP address. Well, yeah, well, kind of, right? That could take a few minutes. That could take 10, 15, 20 minutes, maybe, right? Yep. And, you know, when you, when, if that's, this were a real outage, right, that could be millions of dollars. But on top of that, you have to account for a production system would probably have SNAP enabled. SNAP will actually hide the real IP address. So you could be futzing around for an, uh, an hour to three hours trying to figure out which actual instance that was, right? And, you know, meanwhile, the system is down. But guess what? It wasn't down, right? Nobody's freaking out. We kind of we were able to learn these things, you know, and how things really weren't the way they needed to be proactively. And this was during our cloud transformation. You know, cloud transformation, I'm not sure if there's ever really into that. You know, it's just like there's never really into the DevOps transformations or our open source or it kind of just it's 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 is that what triggers yeah. it though? Is, is cloud transformation that triggers these conversations, or is that the right time for it to get triggered? It's, it's, it's the most common beginning point for all chaos engineering in most companies is that people are trying to verify that the system uh, works the way they think it does because they're concerned. Right. They're concerned about that story I told you in the beginning where there's this legacy system. It worked there, worked in our data center. We moved it all over the cloud because we were told all these great things and we deliver value quicker to customer. And, you know, we're unsure now because those engineers that did that are not the ones doing this. And like, you know, but now... We have, we have a way. So not only do we still do great software engineering testing, unit testing, smoke testing, we, all that still applies. I've not said we stop any of that. What we're doing is skipping to, Casey and I like to call it the sort of like, once you've achieved CI and CD, there's just really this need for a continuous verification mechanism. And that's right. really what chaos engineering is. That's how we explain it in terms of like with executives. Somebody was asking me that earlier, like, you know, uh, that's a more of an adult conversations versus cartoons, monkeys, and other characters, you know, it's really about continuously verifying the system is operationally ready the way we think it is. And that's a better way to structure a conversation. Interesting. And I, it's a great example. And I, I'm just conscious of the time as well. We'll probably have 10 more minutes. But is there, because there's a concept around chaos engineering as a service, and sounds like to, there's some kind of maturity scale that's required. I'm heading towards a maturity model in your book, which I've heard of, but is there a maturity model or is chaos engineering as a service, which is kind of what Verica does, I imagine? So uh, Verica is not actually a SaaS service. It's an on-prem software. Okay. You know, because like a lot of times SaaS services will require like an agent to be on a thing and like if the SaaS service is compromised, then, <laughs> then, you know, then you become compromised, you know, potentially. So we, and we find that we're trying to help all companies be able to sort of do this. So when I say it's sort of on-prem software, I mean, it can be ran in the cloud. It's just ran inside of your environments. Uh, that's right. kind of we do it that way. So, and we're able to do certain experiments because we write directly to software. We don't require some sort of agent to do it. Right, so right. Our side, but. So maturity level that we, so how do how does one find a maturity level? Like does, does one exist for like a metrics for chaos engineering? What's the yeah, metrics yeah. for chaos engineering? There does. There is. Uh, I forget what chapter it is in the book. There's also, a, it is in the book. There's a whole chapter in the the book on, I forget who wrote it. could be Nora Jones that might have wrote it. Um, but there's a whole chapter on the chaos engineering maturity life cycle. Sweet. Uh, into. And a lot of it is like starting a non-prod, you know, testing out, verifying the, the, the open source tool or the scripts you, scripts you wrote. If you're finding yeah. out the open source tools don't do it for you, you know, write your own. I mean, like, you know, just make sure you open source it so the world can benefit. Uh, but yeah. like, 
you know, that's what we struggle with as a community is a lot of the tools that have been written inside of companies don't get released because they can't release them. So yeah. there's actually some great tools out there that just, you know, I agree. Yeah. Uh, I think another great, great question came in from David. Uh, probably the last question for this one. What, what are the elements to building a business case for chaos engineering to get support from business stakeholders? So it all comes down to, you know, on the security side. So the security, the security use case and the availability use cases are kind of both similar in theme, but it's like, you know, it's that whole, are we, are we going to constantly mature our applications through unforeseen failure and, you know, poor business outcomes? Are we going to be proactive about trying to understand that and fixing that? So, you know, one of the, you know, the same thing goes with like security. So with security, the average cost for like per cloud workload for security is somewhere between 25 and 40%, depending on what level of regu regulation you're required. So you're spending 25 to 40% of all of your budget off for an application running in a cloud on security. It's, would, it, would it be beneficial to know how much of that actually works? Like, so what you're trying to do is, it, and you can't really put a dollar figure on the confidence you get through chaos engineering. It's like, if the, when there's a breach that comes out for a certain type of attack, you know, with confidence, like you run this experiment 10 times a day. I know for a fact that that would occur, like we have mechanisms in place, like you can focus your attention elsewhere, right? Where you yep. need, like these things you may not be thinking about in maybe write new experiments. It's a way of, it's the only way, the only way to be proactively identify these types of things before they manifest into catastrophic problems. And it's hard to put a dollar figure on a breach, but man, people are getting tired about hearing the breach had never happened. Uh, the outage had never happened with like, like it, it's, a one of the other things that we do and uh, what Netflix does with chaos engineering is we try to tie the out the success of experiments to business KPIs, right? Like you can you can now explain, you know, this is where we're trying to get to as a craft in general. We're trying to point the craft to is yep. all the technology doesn't is not what you're you're not trying to just build technology. You're trying to build business value, right? So like when chap runs when Netflix's chap runs, what it does is it, it monitors like you know not not like the technology, it monitors like, you know, stream starts per second. Can people play a movie, right? Sometimes it's uh, a checkout cards converted. Sometimes it's, I don't know, signups per hour, signups per minute, yep. or whatever. And like, but you monitor that KPI. If that ever deviates, you stop the experiment because now you know customers have a bad time during that condition, report that data back to the, the service owner, and they get to investigate what happened, right? Like, because if that makes sense, what I'm saying, you, now, you now get to explain how you improved product, business value, like, customer's experience. That's where you want to go. But like the fundamental premise should start with the business case and the ROI. By the way, there's a chapter on that in here and putting it together. But you kind of start with like the exercise of being proactive and learning about the system proactively instead of through retroactive failure or customer pain. And the and the value that you're putting across is application resilience. So so it's the the use case is not more you get better security, but the use case is more like your customers can have a much more stable application running for the, or being presented to them instead of this. Because I think to your point, a lot of people may go, go down the path of going, oh, this is more secure because you've done experiments, but actually it's the other way around where you build application resiliency to have a highly available system or a highly available service for your customers. I think that's how probably a better way to put it. Would you agree? Yeah, that's, that's yeah. That's, you're actually, yeah, exactly. Sweet. So we're kind of towards the end of the interview. 
And I've got these fun questions, which I clearly, by the way, does David get like two books because he's asked like three questions? <laughs> I don't know. You don't have to say this. I mean, you can, you can decide what you want to do, but he's been like really asking a lot of questions. So I'm like, does that mean he gets two books? But I'll let you decide that with the, I do want to, I'll let you decide that when you, when we talk to him, sure. but uh, with the, so I guess I've got some fun questions towards the end of the interview, which I normally go through, not too personal. So uh, just three of them. I want to go through them one by one. What do you spend most time on when you're not working on cloud or chaos engineering or technology? What do I do? What do I do in my personal time? Yeah. Uh, I try to go fishing with my son, to be honest. Are you, oh, you like fishing. You're like a very patient man. No, it's a way for me to exercise my patient muscles. Patience muscles. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I, yeah. The magnif magnification of sucking at fishing and then sucking at it with a, 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 an eight-year-old uh, and, and their their frustrations magnified yours. It's, you know, I just not do it. game going up. Patience game going up. <laughs> Next question. What is something that you're proud of but is not on your social media? Proud of not on my social media. Hmm. Yeah. Like a lot of people talk about family and the support they have or something they've achieved, which like, like a degree or something personal, like the charity work they would have done. So is uh, there something that you can share? So, so I was in the Marine Corps years ago Thank for a number of years. And I designed actually at age 21, I got the opportunity because I knew satellites, radios, phones, and computers. Uh, I knew all that. I was one of the only people in, the, in the, actually the continent of Africa. Uh, and in the really? That like within the Department of Defense and military, right? It kind of, it kind of had. There's this huge tsunami in the uh, Indian Ocean, and it really affected the Seychelles, uh, you know, as a country. And I was able to sort of a diplomatic mission. I was able to go over there and design the disaster relief communication network. It was fascinating. It worked in it. It, it, it ended up getting ended up being a very successful effort, and I'm very proud. To, I was really proud of that work. Uh, one of my life's best work is being wow. able to for an entire country. I designed their ability to respond to a, I guess I've been in resilience for a while. I don't know. Uh, yeah. My, I was going to say like there, there are elements of uh, chaos engineering and application resiliency in there, that, in that answer that you gave me uh, a last question. What's your favorite cuisine or restaurant that you can share? Oh my gosh. Um, cuisine. I know you're a foodie yourself, so I'm, I'm keen to know. It's really hard to come up with one answer, but. What would be my favorite answer? I don't know. I don't know if I could. could do what's what's that. your go-to? Let's go with that. What's what's good? What's your go-to for like after we get retiring day, like a burger, pizza? No. What would I go to? We I eat so much. My wife is actually uh, Taiwanese, so we eat a lot of Asian food. And I oh, kind of, right. I don't like to eat a lot of meat, so I I kind of also don't eat, I like to eat a lot of sugar. <laughs> so like right, I, that, that explains the aloe vera and your black tea. Oh yeah. So I don't know. I just try to eat healthy, but I try to, eat, you know, I try to have a wide variety of foods. I've lived kind of all over the world. So I, I've got, have, you know, uh, I, you know, try to, we try to just eat different things and different tastes and, you know, but awesome. eat healthy. Wait, thanks so much for that, man. I think uh, eating healthy is always great. I'll, I'll say that. I think especially the older you get, the healthier you should eat just to be, <laughs> just to be normal, I guess. Um, <laughs> so true. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, so, where can people find you on social media? I, I'm pretty responsive on LinkedIn. And I'm pretty, like when I say, like, here's my content information, it's like uh, at Aaron Reinhardt on Twitter. You can look up Aaron Reinhardt on LinkedIn. Or you go to Aaron at Verica.io is my email. I, yeah. I mean, I will respond to you. 
right? No matter what question you ask me. Uh, well, you know, it depends if it gets too personal or something. Be, be like, careful for what you ask for from the internet, but... Well, no, hey, actually, I put that out for years and people are pretty genuine. Other than like people trying to sell me something or like, I, I have a pretty good filter for that. You know, all right, that's good. If you have a genuine question you want to learn, like, you know, no matter whether you're a college student or you're a career professional, like, I try to help everyone. I believe that's, I mean, that's like, that's what I enjoy is helping people. But I believe yeah, that's, that's, you know, I believe that's the security community in general, though. Like, I've always felt that as well. That, I mean, kind of like yourself, there's so many people in the security community who are just like us, just sharing free information out there. We just want people to like, the, and, I don't want to get into the whole gateway topic, but it is this conversation that goes on on Twitter about there's a gated approach to getting into security, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's a topic for another time. But I, I loved uh, this episode, man. And I think uh, I think the comments flowing in also make sure, uh, gives me the sign that a lot of other people loved it as well. So thank you so much for your time. And I can't wait to have you bring a, come again because clearly I had so many more questions and I feel like all those, all of those are unanswered. So I kind of can't wait to bring you back on again on the show. Well, thanks, Ashish. This was great. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to that episode of Cloud Security Podcast. If you found some new information from that episode, we would appreciate if you share it with others. Share it with us as well if you have any good feedback or good learnings from the episode. We are on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you don't find us there, you can always go on our website, www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv to listen to the latest episode. We appreciate your support in helping us grow. It helps us bring more guests. It helps us support the channel. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and talk to you on the next episode.